Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we complete our read-through of the story, The White Snake, and uncover the stages involved in the work of bringing our creative potential to life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. So, here we are at the final installment of this mini-series of episodes focusing on a deep read-through of the Grimm's tale, The White Snake. In this series, I've suggested that this tale offers a symbolic description of the experience of the inner life and its typical developments and that it can also be approached as a kind of map for how to navigate this dimension of life experience. In the first part of this series, we looked at the awakening of the inner life. This is a moment that brings an influx of new energy and potential, while at the same time marks a disruption in one's orientation to life. The old way of living or seeing is too narrow to incorporate and contain the new energy or insight. The new wine cannot be poured into old wineskins. A more comprehensive way must be found and forged. And this work of creating a more comprehensive way was the subject of the second part of this series. And what the story revealed there was that this stage involves a relinquishing of willpower and the striving of the ego and a tuning in to the deeper movements of the psyche. And that's the point at which we left our exploration. Now we turn to the phase of the process where the new energy, the new potential, needs to be incorporated into life, right? Made manifest through some commitment, some field of activity. The story so far has followed the journey of a young servant who, after tasting a mysterious white snake, is enabled to hear the language of animals. He heads out into the world and encounters three sets of animals, fish, ants, and ravens, each of which he helps in some way, including by sacrificing his horse to feed the young, starving ravens. From there, he walks on his own legs into a city, and learns that the king's daughter 
is seeking a husband. Winning the right to marry her involves risking one's life by taking on a very difficult task, and this the youth agrees to do. And so now we pick up the story from here. So he was led out to the sea, and a gold ring was thrown into it in his sight. Then the king ordered him to fetch this ring up from the bottom of the sea and added, If you come up again without it, you will be thrown in again and again until you perish amid the waves. All the people grieved for the handsome youth. Then they went away, leaving him alone by the sea. He stood on the shore and considered what he should do, when suddenly he saw three fishes come swimming toward him, and they were the very fishes whose lives he had saved. The one in the middle held a mussel in its mouth, which it laid on the shore at the youth's feet. And when he had taken it up and opened it, there lay the gold ring in the shell. Full of joy, he took it to the king and expected that he would grant him the promised reward. So here there begins a sequence of events in which the animals that the youth helped earlier in the story return to help him. And each of the animals, psychologically understood, is a kind of instinct or creative capacity, right? One which enables a particular value to be realized in our life experience. And they're non-rational energies. That is, they're not under the control of our rational ego. They're things like intuitions or inspirations, sudden hunches or lucky coincidences, that kind of thing. We can't produce these things by an act of will, right? But, but we can create the conditions in which they're more likely to occur. And the earlier encounters with the animals, which we discussed before in terms of letting go of the will, which was represented by the horse, in favor of learning to sense these more subtle movements of the psyche, these encounters were the necessary preparations for their readiness to be helpful to the youth in his time of need. And the task that the king's daughter sets is to recover a ring. And this, of course, echoes that earlier scene in the story when the queen loses her ring. Now there I said that the ring represented the old order, the old relationship with life. So here it's a new relationship to life that must be made. And the work involved in this task is that of reflection. The youth sits alone by the sea, which is a kind of image of brooding, 
meditating or reflecting. And the fish are images of the life of the depths of the psyche. And so this then is an image of turning to the creative imagination, of, of paying attention to the life of our own creative depths, of taking the activity of the psyche seriously. And this points to the truth that it matters what kind of ideas we bring into the world, right? Because behind every action, behind everything that we do, there's an idea or an image. And if we don't have a conscious relationship, a conscious understanding about our underlying ideas, then it's likely that we're being driven by some unconscious image or idea of how life should be. The inherited ideas of our family or culture, say, or the suggestions and manipulations of marketers, or the moment-to-moment -moment urgings of our own unruly appetites. Reflection is what's needed to be able to take up a conscious relationship to our own life and our own inner life. And more than that, our work to become conscious quite literally brings new values into the world. And this is what gives the symbolic life its ultimate dignity. The work that we do toward our own growth and transformation is not just done for our own benefit. No matter how limited the sphere and the scale of our inner work may be, says Jung, nevertheless, it lays an infinitesimal grain on the scales of humanity's soul. And the story continues. But when the proud princess perceived that he was not her equal in birth, she scorned him and required him first to perform another task. She went down into the garden and strewed with her own hands ten sacks full of millet seed on the grass. Then she said, Tomorrow morning, before sunrise, these must be picked up and not a single grain be wanting. The youth sat down in the garden and considered how it might be possible to perform this task, but he could think of nothing. And there he sat, sorrowfully awaiting the break of day, when he should be led to death. But as soon as the first rays of the sun shone into the garden, he saw ten sacks standing side by side, quite full, and not a single grain was missing. The ant king had come in the night with thousands and thousands of ants, and the grateful creatures had by great industry picked up all the millet seed and gathered them into the sacks. The youth's initial joy at having recovered the ring 
is short-lived, as he's rebuffed by the princess. And even though he's completed the task, he's immediately given another. And at first glance, of course, this doesn't seem very fair. So how are we supposed to understand this development in the story? What does this say about how our relationship with our inner work progresses? Well, what this suggests is that the first rush of inspiration, what the poet Rilke calls the winged energy of delight, is not enough to sustain us over the long term. That heightened energy needs to be translated into disciplined work. And we know that this is true, right? We see it at work, for instance, in our relationships. That initial feeling of falling in love eventually fades. And it's then followed by the need to do the hard work of maintaining love amidst the challenges and the mundane realities of everyday life. And so this indicates that there's a need to shift away from a merely personal pleasure or gratification that we might get from something in favor of a dedication to whatever work it is that we're doing for its own sake. The motto for this stage of the work might be that word of advice that the famed acting teacher Konstantin Stanislavski gave to his students. Love the art in yourself, he reportedly told them. Not yourself in the art. Life represented here by the figure of the king's daughter, demands that we are in service to it, not simply to our own personal comfort and satisfaction. And the ants themselves represent the action of discernment and differentiation. The task given to the youth is to separate out all the millet seed and so for us, we might say, the work is to determine what it is that constitutes the good seed in our lives. That is, which ideas and activities have potential for growth and which are mere distractions. And this need for discernment has probably never been more important than it is today. There are so many ways to which we can direct our energies, so many things that want to occupy our attention, as I discuss in depth in episode two of this podcast, Noise and the Inner Life. But as the philosopher Raymond Panikkar writes, we should not squander our time with all kinds of things, although they may be important and pleasant, which do not constitute wisdom, do not bring salvation, and do not allow for joy to appear. And with that, we come to the final section of our story.
Presently the king's daughter herself came down into the garden, and was amazed to see that the young man had done the task she had given him. But she could not yet conquer her proud heart, and said, Although he has performed both tasks, he shall not be my husband until he has brought me an apple from the tree of life. The youth did not know where the tree of life stood, but he set out and would have gone on forever as long as his legs would carry him, though he had no hope of finding it. After he had wandered through three kingdoms, he came one evening to a wood and lay down under a tree to sleep. But he heard a rustling in the branches, and a golden apple fell into his hand. At the same time, three ravens flew down to him, perched themselves upon his knee, and said, We are the three young ravens whom you saved from starving. When we had grown big and heard that you were seeking the golden apple, we flew over the sea to the end of the world, where the tree of life stands, and have brought you the apple. The youth, full of joy, set out homewards and took the golden apple to the king's beautiful daughter, who had now no more excuses left to make. They cut the apple of life in two and ate it together. And then her heart became full of love for him, and they lived in undisturbed happiness to a great age. So here we discover the fruit of all that has come before. And that is the experience of faith. That is the apple that grows on the tree of life. Now by faith, I don't mean religious faith, at least not as it's commonly understood today, right? As something synonymous with the word belief. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's used for faith is pistis, which, as I discuss in my book, is a word that refers to the experience of a trust in and a loyalty to our deepest experiences. A trust in and a loyalty to our deepest experiences. And to get this experience of faith... To achieve this trust and loyalty to our deepest experiences, or in the words of the story, to find the golden apple from the tree of life, one has to pass through three kingdoms. And these three kingdoms are just those aspects of experience that correspond to the three animals that we've been looking at. So the first kingdom is the realm of inspiration, or the imagination, the watery depths inhabited by the fish. And this is the inner life proper, the source of the image or vision that sets us in motion. And the second 
is the earthly realm of the ants, the everyday world in which that vision is tested and shaped and turned into a lived human life. And the third realm is this kingdom of faith, which is the domain of the birds, the ravens, which are an image of the human spirit. Now, there's a lot that we could say about the ravens, but there's one major aspect of this symbol that's emphasized here, and that's the ability they have to fly to the ends of the earth. And this, of course, draws its resonance from the stunning fact of migration, that seemingly miraculous ability that birds have to set out on a dangerous and arduous journey, often consisting of thousands of miles. And the spiritual writer Evelyn Underhill uses this phenomenon of migration as an image that describes the possibilities of the human spirit. So, of the birds, she writes this. She writes, Incarnate scraps of hope, courage, determination. They were ready at a given moment to leave all and follow the inward voice. Obeying the instinct that called them in the teeth of peril and difficulty, giving themselves trustfully to the supporting air. And a similar readiness to follow the inward voice, despite all difficulty, characterizes the youth at this climactic point of the story. We're told, for instance, that he did not know where the tree of life stood, but he set out and would have gone on forever as long as his legs would carry him, though he had no hope of finding it. And it's just this willingness to persist in the journey into the unknown that is at the heart of this section of the story. It is, in a sense, the takeaway of the whole story. The ideal of our complete self-realization, says Jung, is unattainable. But this he adds, is no reason not to let ourselves be guided by it. Such an ideal gives us a direction at which to aim. It guides us into life where we can be shaped and where we can learn to bring forth, to the best of our ability, our inborn potential. And this is true whether we're talking about the creation of a work of art, or the development of our own personality. We have to risk the adventure of life with our whole being, without the certainty of knowing in advance where it will lead us. And this is what William James teaches. He says this, Not a victory is gained, not a deed of faithfulness or courage is done except upon a maybe. Not a service, not a sally of generosity, not a scientific exploration or experiment or textbook that may not be a mistake. It is only by risking our persons from one hour to another that we live at all. 
and often enough our faith beforehand in an uncertified result is the only thing that makes the result come true. And this risking of ourselves, right, this risking of our potential is that which guides us in the words of our tale to the golden apple. And this, it turns out, is both the fruit we receive from our commitment to life and, at the same time, the gift that we give in return to life. And here our story comes to an end. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening. 